Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated. While we think, hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, while we think we're getting good health care and why we're usually wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hello, this is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Medicine. Harlem, 1946. One of the most celebrated young black writers of a generation, a maligned German-American psychiatrist, and a prominent pastor descend into the basement of St. Philip's Episcopal Church. I recently spoke with Gabriel Mendez, assistant professor of ethnic studies and urban studies at the University of California, San Diego, about his new book, Under the Strain of Color, Harlem's Lafargue Clinic and the Promise of an Anti-Racist Psychiatry, published in 2015 by Cornell University Press. Mendez follows this unlikely set of actors through their respective careers and the establishment of the Lafargue Clinic, perhaps the first institution of its kind, aimed at accounting for the psychiatric ramifications of racial oppression and redressing the lack of access to mental health care faced by Harlem's black community. The clinic advocated for a then-radical social psychiatry that took racial and economic oppression seriously, a vision born of the aforementioned author Richard Wright's interaction with the Communist Party and Chicago School Sociology, mixed with psychiatrist Frederick Wortham's idiosyncratic approach to psychoanalysis. Establishing accessible, affordable therapy and psychiatric court testimony for the population of Harlem was a grassroots effort that provided hitherto inaccessible services. Yet it was overlooked by, by state measures for community mental health in the 1950s and eventually wound down, in itself a parable for contemporary efforts to address racialized health disparities, especially regarding mental health. I enjoyed talking with Gabriel about his own intellectual trajectory and the very rich literatures and material drawn on by the book. 
This is one for scholars of the politics of health, African-American and urban studies, 20th century literature, for its focus on right as much as its reevaluation of Wortham, who's typically painted as reactionary, and especially those interested in the troubled legacy of American psychiatry. Hi, everyone. This is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Medicine. I'm here today speaking with Gabriel Mendez, Assistant Professor of Ethnic Studies at UC San Diego, about his new book, Under the Strain of Color, Harlem's Lafarge Clinic and the Promise of an Anti-Racist Psychiatry. Gabriel, welcome to New Books in Medicine. Thank you. I'm really excited to uh, be in conversation with you. Thank you. So the way we like to start things on the New Books Network is by having each of our authors give us a sense of their own intellectual trajectory, uh, sure. how they came into the field, and how they uh, came to write the work at hand. So I would love if you could chart your uh, terrain for us, as it were. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I went uh, to graduate school at Brown University in the Department of American Civilization. Uh, they still had the name American Civilization at the time that I attended. They've since uh, subsequently changed it to American Studies. But in a lot of ways, uh, as, as many people know, the title American Civilization was a kind of um, uh, it was birthed and, uh, and, and elaborated in the Cold War era to enunciate the uh, the the exceptional qualities of of, <laughs> of American society and history and culture, um, but yeah, I, I I attended the American Civilization Department. Prior to that, uh, I uh, attended uh, my undergraduate degree was at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York, and I majored in Africana studies and religious studies. So it was a double major. And then uh, subsequently, uh, uh, a year and a half, uh, approximately uh, two years after graduating from uh, Hobart, I went to Harvard Divinity School. So uh-huh. I did a religious studies, a uh, master of theological studies, which is a more of the a study of as opposed to uh, the ministerial practice of of religion. And, and it was an extraordinary experience because I, I arrived at Harvard Divinity School the very same year that uh, Professor Cornell West joined uh, the faculty in uh, African American studies and over in the divinity school. So that was an extraordinary experience. But um, at when I uh, pursued uh, the doctoral program in uh, in American studies at Brown, I always um, envisioned myself having also one foot in uh, Africana studies or African-American studies or, or like we could even Afro-diasporic studies broadly mm-hmm. construed. And what was great about the time that I arrived at, uh, at Brown in, in, in 2001, I was there officially 2001 to 2009. Um, but what was great about that was the Africana Studies Department did not yet have a graduate program, so the professors there were very excited to welcome um, graduate students from other programs, other other gra- graduate programs throughout the university, and really uh, it allowed me to glom onto them, so to speak. and mm-hmm. And I ended up being a teaching assistant um, in in both American Studies and in uh, Africana Studies. And what was really Exciting about the time that I arrived there and, and, and actually feeds into 
um, how this uh, book, Under the Strain of Color, took shape um, initially as my dissertation, which I'll, I'll mention in just a minute. Mm-hmm. What was what was exciting was there were a batch of um, uh, scholars there who were really reckoning with the work of uh, the Martinican psychiatrist and and anti-colonial thinker Franz Fanon and well anti-colonial fighter as well. I mean he mm-hmm. he uh, he uh, abjured or abdicated his position as a French colonial psychiatrist and and joined the Algerian Revolution. So <laughs> yes, he, uh, he he was he was both uh, many know he was both a a, a a a theorist thinker and a um, and, and a and a, and a uh, and an activist. So, um, but what, what, what the questions they were, uh, the scholars there were reckoning with, um, often, um, uh, often bore down to the question of the lived experience of racialization and particularly what it meant to live black in an anti-black society. And so, um, one of the main texts that I read and reread with, with, uh, with figures like, uh, Lewis R. Gordon, the philosopher Lewis Gordon and, and the, uh, sociologist, uh, Paget Henry at, at, uh, Brown was, we read, um, we read Black Skin, White Mass very closely, both, um, both in terms of its, um, uh, both in terms of its connections and, and origins in a set of questions in psychoanalysis, but also in phenomenology and other philosophical concerns. So both the kind of um, uh, nuts and bolts psycho- psychoanalytic uh, questions, as well as the uh, question of method of, 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 of the phenomenology of, of um, in the book, it's translated as uh, into English as the fact of blackness, but it's, it's, it's at more aptly uh, the lived experience of the black. And so a set of questions emerged from me, for me, um, that, uh, that, it, that took shape, um, in relation to what I was learning in American studies as well. And that main question was, um, the relationship between, uh, normality and pathology as, uh, constructed and enacted in the human sciences and as it intersect with the changing meanings of race. Mm-hmm. And so uh, while I, I entered that line of inquiry through the more theoretically sophisticated dimensions of, 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 of working through Fanon, I always um, uh, pick up those theoretical questions and see how um, how they may translate or 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 be I uh, identified in a set of historical uh, circumstances or questions, and so um, at the very same moment that I was engaging sort of a phenomenon, well, phenom studies, so to speak, I was also um, engaging. Um, a real, what I like to call a kind of a boomlet in American historiography on, uh, on the human sciences at the level of, at the level of intellectual history, but also policy history and theoretical questions, but uh, just a, a broad ranging, uh, uh, emergent set of texts. I'm thinking of Alice O'Connor's poverty knowledge 
Ellen Herman's Romance of American Psychology. And probably for me, the most important of that that body of text uh, was Daryl Michael Scott's Contempt and Pity. The it's the the uh, it's the the image of the damaged black psyche in American policy. That's the subtitle or or some some iteration of that. And so I I had in on one side a real um, thoroughgoing uh, theoretical. Um, uh, body of work I was I was I was reeling from, so to speak, but also um, very excited to engage in um, tracing the genealogies of the human sciences and how they how they intersected with questions of race and racialization, mm-hmm. and so uh, to put a kind of uh, um, uh, uh, a, a punctuation on on this is that my uh, when I um, proposed my dissertation, it was a really um, ambitious, wide ranging study. I I called living the dilemma, Lim- living the dilemma, African American encounters with the human sciences in post war America, which is wow. just. Uh, a very capacious topic, and I I always say to my uh, uh, gra- to graduate students, and I, I I have no idea how my dissertation committee accepted that because it's it was really it was really a multi volume work uh, in, in in the offing, and and so um, the first my um, uh, the way if you, would you allow me to just talk a little bit about that dissertation oh, topic and yeah. it um, I I. Each chapter was supposed to be a, a, a four, a four or five, depending on four or five chapter dissertation, very much mapped along um, a life cycle, and, and and in many ways, I took a cue from the autobiography of Malcolm X to look at the sites in which um, uh, a young African American in this case, man, uh, encounters in both discourses and institutions, the knowledge that's produced about him. And so mm-hmm. I, I was, I, I, I imagined a, a, a project that looked like this social work, a chapter on social work, right? The family, the initial site of which, um, the human sciences are, are brought to bear on, on everyday people. So social work, and then um, education and, and schools, public schools, and then juvenile delinquency, uh, and then um, uh, 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 a psychiatric clinic. Because there's this famous moment in autobiography of Malcolm X where, where, uh, where Malcolm X, uh, young, well, he's still Malcolm Little, uh, feigns madness. He fakes madness in order to get out of service in the military. Uh, and he's where he famously says, well, he's frantic to join the Japanese army. And they're like, whoa, 4F. <laughs> so anyway, um, the last was to be prisons. And so what happened was I, I initially did a little foray into some of those other possible chapters. But then um, uh, by sheer accident of timing, uh, I was slated to teach a course called African-American Autobiography. It, as a as an advanced graduate student at Brown, and I was slated to teach it in spring, and got notified 
just about a month before the start of the fall semester that, hey, we need this course now. <laughs> and so I began to do my homework. And this is the very same time where I, was, I formulated the dissertation topic. I was doing my um, syllabus construction and knowing that I was working uh, going to work with uh, uh, Richard Wright, um, who, as you know, um, is a co-founder of the Lafarge Clinic. That's the subject of, of Under the Strain of Color. Um, I'm doing all this um, uh, background on Wright and in a chronology of Wright's uh, life and work, it says 1946 co-founds the Lafargue Mental Hygiene Clinic in Harlem with uh, German, Jewish German psychiatrist, Dr. Frederick Wortham and uh, like, like <laughs> deus, deus ex machina, yeah, like, yeah. like, light bulbs and all lightning and <laughs> as you might have thunder soon uh, <laughs> come out of nowhere. And I say, and I, I, I still have the, the, that chronology and it says, it, I wrote next to it, look up, like, look <laughs> that up, like, look that up. And so I did, I looked that up and it turned out that um, while, you know, this was going to be just one chapter in that larger um, ambitious dissertation project, it really, um, I went down, as I, as I say to, as I, as I would say to my dissertation advisor, Jim Campbell, I went down the, the research rabbit hole. I went down the archival rabbit hole and, and actually yielded, um, I, I yielded enough material that I, I made the case that this should be the focus of the whole um, dissertation project and manuscript, mm -hmm. and so, so sort of like an inversion of what you thought your approach was going to be. Absolutely, You're tracing a life through different institutions. It ends up exactly. being that in one institution, many, many different lives kind of coalesce. Absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. That's a really apt description. And so, I was able to locate archival materials at at the Schomburg Center. I uh, uh, it's an interesting story because I. I I uh, I was able to f locate uh, archival material from from the clinic itself, but very, all things considered, quite limited. There were uh, approximately four um, uh, archival boxes of material that that the uh, physician in charge Hilda L. Massey of of the uh, Lafarge Clinic left and 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 dedicated to um, to the Schomburg Center. But that's not very many. And, and in fact, there are approximately f only 40, uh, 40 patient files. Um, but there were clinic records. There was correspondence. And I was able to kind of go um, the back route. There were, uh, I, there were the archives of Richard Wright at the Beinecke Library. And also I began to think who would Wortham have corresponded with and who were his mentors. So I, 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 and for those of uh, those in the history of medicine and psychiatry, I located uh, in the papers of uh, of 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 the dean of American psychiatry, Adolf Meyer uh, of Johns Hopkins, and turned out that there was a, a a trove of letters and correspondence and and reports on Wortham, uh, who I mean, you know, we'll get to shortly. I'm sure, you know, in, in depth, but um, the real when I said it's an interesting story, the Frederick Wortham collection at the Library of Congress was restricted and closed to me during the entire mm. dissertation 
research and writing process. Huh. It wasn't until uh, 2010 that I was able to uh, gain access. They opened up. Um, and I'm sure there's within the next five years, there's going to be <laughs> a bunch of new texts that, that draw in some ways on, on the Wortham papers. Mm. So, yeah. And, and in a lot of ways, you know, one of the things that I, I, that, that is a kind of um, a, a methodological and, and historiographic um, quandary and question that I actually, I, I discuss with students and colleagues is, you know, um, you know, how much material is enough to, to uh, construct a narrative, right? To reconstruct a narrative or construct whatever word you want to use. And that was always, you know, I, I, I had what, what, uh, my advisor, Jim Campbell referred to as dissertation disease initially, right? I felt like I needed to have a, a strictly source driven. Um, uh, he loved it. He loved that I was rigorous about citation and, and I needed every document to correspond to a claim I made. And I think that's a really proper intention and, and orientation, but the story doesn't strictly depend on just having, you know, one, like uh, uh, a piece of datum to correspond that, that I was able to glean from both primary and secondary sources enough to really make some claims about the significance of the Lafarge clinic and of the trajectory of its co-founders. And ultimately it's um, it's uh, it's impact and legacy on both questions of race in the human sciences and, and in the medical sciences, and also its significance to um, the, the field of, of mental health care proper. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Excellent. <laughs> that's, that was, that's a, that lot was a great info. overview in, uh, into your approach to the project. And so yeah. I'm just wondering if you could summarize briefly for us, just before we dive into yeah. deeper discussion in the context of the book. So what was the Lafarge Clinic? Um, how long did it run? What was sort of what's the kind of time scale and the scope yeah. we're looking at right here? Yeah. So um, the Lafargue Mental Hygiene Clinic was the first outpatient psychiatric clinic in in and for the community of Harlem, New York. It opened in March of 1946 and uh, closed at the end of 1958, and it operated every Tuesday and Friday evenings out of the basement of the St. Philip's Episcopal Church in Harlem on 134th Street. And it was staffed by an all-volunteer, um, uh, it was it, an all-volunteer staff made up of uh, a number of the co-founder, Dr. Wortham's uh, students and colleagues, as well as some uh, community members in Harlem. For most cases, each therapy session, um, it was it didn't require a referral. It could be walk in. Each session was uh, cost a quarter. Uh, mm-hmm. Doctor Wortham actually got the nickname in the neighborhood of Doctor Quarter. He was called Doctor Quarter uh, <laughs> uh, 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 amongst uh, folks in Harlem, and it um, and it was free if you didn't if you couldn't pay that quarter. And so each session was 30 minutes, an hour in some cases, and uh, it cost 50 cents for um, uh, one of the doctors to testify in court in, for some, for any reason. Um, 
And the clinic um, is um, very much uh, uh, emblematic of um, an attention to the need for um, extending greater uh, mental health services. And, and yet in that larger effort to extend mental health services, very little attention was given to the needs of African-Americans uh, and other marginalized communities and, 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 um, and to the poor in general. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, at the very same, in the very same year that the Lafarge Clinic was, uh, was established, Congress uh, dedicated uh, funds to the establishment of the National Institute of Mental Health. I believe it didn't really get up and running till 1949. I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm t- pretty decent with dates, but I'm pretty, but I know that, that the effort was initiated uh, for the National Institute of Mental Health in 1946. And so, you know, like, if you look at that in terms of a, like a parallel kind of, um, you know, not to be too corny about it, but zeitgeist, um, there is a, an unprecedented attention to um, to the, the the necessity for mental health services for the American citizenry, and um, but yet that didn't trickle down. Neither the actual institute at the institutional level didn't trickle down to African Americans, and the orientation of the Lafar Clinic was distinctive in terms of its mm-hmm. attention to its explicit attention to. Um, the experiences of anti-black racism and uh, labor or, or class exploitation and subjugation. So both in terms of both its diagnostic and uh, therapeutic orientations. So there's this, you know, there's the, 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 the kind of nuts and bolts of the clinic. Um, and the context is, you know, there, there's a, there's um, uh, unprecedented attention, but, but where are, uh, the needs of African Americans entering into this, and and the title of of the book under the strain of color comes from uh, an, uh, a nineteen forty seven a nineteen forty seven Negro Digest article called Brown Breakdown, in which um, the author Kay Crimmins actually poses that very question of well, okay, this is going, and she uses the um, the military as a, a kind of a site uh, to to expand and elaborate to American society. Well, okay, so, um, you know, the, that in the midst of World War II, many soldiers cracked under the pressure. Well, what about African-Americans who uh, experience daily onslaughts and are cracking under the strain of color? And I've always found that such a resonant image and 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 reference. And so... That then became, um, in coordination with the editors of Cornell University Press, that became the title of of, of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. And actually, to you know, while on the subject of some of the material and the ways in which it you know inspires and in a way like kind of theorizes uh, itself when selected mm-hmm. properly, I wanted to quote from um, one of uh, one of your chapters where uh, there's a page uh, that's mm-hmm. sort of a memo that Worland Penn's called The Objectives yeah. of the Lafarge Clinic. And I think it really does kind of address uh, all the things we just spoke to. Uh, yeah. Just to quote from that, it says, public should be acquainted with the fact that discrimination exists in psychiatry. Example, 
Psychiatric Institute does not take Negroes as patients. Individual cases cannot be understood if the above points are not recognized. Um, continues uh, mm. to mention political consciousness, uh, defined by Dr. Wortham as knowing what's going on. And then he says, many who have the opportunity to know what's going on do not accept it. No big theories are needed. No prejudices. And a way, I think, in a way, I think that that kind of is very emblematic of the mission of what seems to be kind of a counter institution, right? It's functioning yeah. uh, in the basement of a church, and <laughs> yes. you know, ma- figures who would otherwise, uh, who we'll get into in a sec, you know, mm-hmm. be really, really uh, major, not like not marginal, but sort of major uh, movers and shakers in their respective backgrounds and fields, kind of coming together to form, yeah, this kind of counter institution in a way. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I, I'm glad you, uh, you zeroed in on that passage, uh, that, that, that memo. I mean, I, uh, I, I rarely in the book have these kind of big block quotes just to let your readers know. Like I try to really distill the, uh, source material into a readerly uh, narrative. And so, and yet that, um, that, um, fragmented, list of approaches to me was so uh, resonant and evocative because it distilled the approach, the orientation in such a clear uh, way in terms of both the kind of um, the explicit connection between the, um, the science and the politics of psychiatry at mid-century, right? And then since that, that um, it, in order to do good psychotherapy in the community of Harlem, it had to address the, and when I say politics, I really think in terms of power, right? And whenever I hear politics, I hear power. That's the word that goes right next. And in terms of the kind of the distribution of power in the society, remember this is um, the clinic is founded um, in the midst or on the kind of tail in the midst of the second wave of the great migration of African-Americans out of the 11 states of the former Confederacy to um, uh, urban industrial centers, you know, thinking of course of the arsenal of democracy, Detroit, you know, um, of course, uh, Philadelphia, um, even out west where I am in San Diego and, 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 and very much Los Angeles, but of course, New York. And so in the midst of, of this great migration, um, African Americans are, um, while, you know, uh, still imagining a promised land of the north, they're encountering a ghetto. You know, uh, I, 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 one of the beginning portions of chapter three of the book, which I'm, we'll get to, I just want to kind of, um, set the stage a little is that, you know, um, uh, Harlem remains both a, um, a Mecca of the black, you know, as from the Harlem Renaissance days of the, the black, the capital of black America, but it's also in, in the words of, of, uh, of, 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 of Claude Brown, author of man child in the promised land. It's a closet sized ghetto, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, to, to disregard, the social context of the, you know, the lived experience of, of the patients before them uh, who come and sit down with them to, to, to disregard, right. Those, those components 
of 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 the racial context, the political of like like of uh, was it the higher type of psychiatry? Um, uh, that that um, it would be a dereliction of the work of psychiatry, according mm-hmm. to Wortham. Right. So this this well, he, he there's this there's this um, uh, quote. I'd like to share with you that in line with that, and it, and it comes from the introduction where um, I want to kind of introduce actually a little bit of the orientation and it connects to what you just posted. May, may I share that portion? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, this comes in, <clears throat> in on page 16 of the introduction. It's, um, uh, it's, it's a paragraph I'd like to, uh, 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 if you bear with me, Wright and Wortham embraced psychological discourse and the science of psychiatry as tools for understanding black experiences of modern American society. Yet they resisted the general aim of the behavior of the behavioral sciences to help the putatively abnormal to adjust to the norms of society. Instead, they sought to develop psychiatric knowledge and therapy that might aid everyday people in confronting the social order of white supremacy and capitalist exploitation. To do so, Wortham developed a distinctive version of, quote, social psychiatry, an orientation to psychiatric diagnosis and psychotherapy that incorporated the social world of the patient into the overall picture of mental health. Mm-hmm. Wortham did not coin the term social psychiatry, but in his writings and public appearances, he consistently trumpeted his particular brand of conjo- conjoining the social sciences and psychiatry as a unique advance in understanding the sources. And here we get to like etiology, right? The, the origins and sources, the sources and in the treatment of personality problems and mental disorders. If you allow me, I just want to finish this paragraph because I think it's resonant. Uh, social psychiatry was an attempt to reorient the field of mental health care toward a, quote, progressive social point of view, end of quote. And acknowledging the political nature of his efforts, Wortham explained that social psychiatry, quote, does not introduce social partisanship into psychiatry. Social psychiatry uncovers scientifically its unconscious or conscious presence in every form of psychiatry that has ever existed. There is no science dealing with human beings that is completely unpolitical, end of quote. And lastly, psychiatry, as practiced at mid-century, was sadly on the wrong side of history, according to Wortham, becoming more reactionary and authoritarian as the great cry for democracy went out from everyday people all over the world. Social psychiatry, Wortham declared, and this is the last sentence, social psychiatry, Wortham declared, uh, quote, affirms that in the historical development of society and its use or abuse of science, periods may occur where seeming adaptation becomes maladaptation, adjustment, maladjustment, normality, a burden, vaunted, vaunted health, an insidious disease, in short, where the physician may be sicker than his patient. And so that even even that's from a lecture that he gave um, be, uh, in front. That's <laughs> really interesting. He gave that lecture at Columbia University at the Psychiatric Institute, which wasn't allowing African Americans uh, 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 treatment at the time. Right. And so yeah, and I think that's a very 
that's a very proper way to introduce Wortham himself. Uh, yeah. I think that, yeah, it would, it would be good to maybe turn to his background. Sure. Just because, I mean, so you kind of, uh, you addressed this a bit in your introduction, but so he had experience working uh, with Adolf Meyer at uh, Johns Hopkins, and he was sort of always kind of on the margins of American psychiatry. Yeah. Uh, a yeah. lot of it was chalked up to personal issues and sure. sort of difficulties he had and trust issues with other physicians, or sorry, psychiatrists, yes. yeah. going back to Germany. And so he had this <clears throat> fascinating trajectory, but he sort of pretty resolutely throughout is very much committed to uh, the social mission that he yes. sees as core to psychiatry that, you know, his contemporaries have strayed from. So how would you characterize Wortham? And more importantly, even, how would you characterize how his particular brand of social psychiatry that he develops over time clashes with the mainstream of yeah, that's psychiatry? Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's, a that's a great way of, of, of um, both uh, telling his background and, uh, more specifically, um, uh, what, what, what indeed makes him this, uh, I, I, I say, uh, in, in the book, uh, simultaneously, paradoxically and simultaneously, simultaneously prominent and marginal, which is mm-hmm. hard to, hard to, hard to do and hard to be, uh, both prominent and marginal at the same time. So, um, Wortham, uh, was born in, um, uh, Nuremberg, um, Bavaria to, um, uh, non-religious, a non-religious middle-class Jewish family, born in uh, 1895, and um, comes of age in uh, you know Kaiser Wilhelm, like pre right pre World War One Germany. But he's got cousins. I'm, I'm going to try to condense this best, but it, but it's really significant where he is educated and who he works with, mm-hmm. because it it sets the stage for how he encounters um, American psychiatry, its orientations, and where he diverges from them. Um, and so he, um, he has cousins, um, and I love history. This is where I love his, his One of his cousins um, is Ella Winter. Ella Winter was a, uh, a communist, a radical uh, journalist, who um, eventually marries later on in her life, Lincoln Steffens, the, the muckraking journalist. Uh, for those of the, oh, those in, 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 uh, in, in, in progressive history land, you'll, you'll, <laughs> you'll, you'll resonate with, with, with Lincoln Steffens. And those of you in, in radical and, and, uh, and Marxist history will be fascinated by the connection to uh, <laughs> Ella Winter. Anyway, so, but he, but Wortham would, um, Wortham was bilingual from a very early age, both uh, German and and English, and so he would spend he would spend summers and uh, in in uh, Britain with the winters and uh, the 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 um, uh, 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 on on his paternal paternal relatives, and he ends up choosing King's College uh, to attend for uh, his his uh, baccalaureate degree. But guess what? He enrolls like just <laughs> at the at, at the guns of August of August 1914 and of of the onset of World War One. And as uh, as as an enemy alien, he is put in uh, an internment camp during the war. But during the war, uh, he um, he was he was he was he was 
I don't know if they had it then, but it was basically pre-med at King's College. And to get to the real um, uh, nuts and bolts, he he works with some other um, interned uh, medical doctors. And one happens to be a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. And he becomes... Uh, I don't um, I don't recall the, the man's name right now. I'm sorry, but that he becomes fascinated with what uh, what what he himself, what Wortham himself uh, refers to as medical psychology um, uh, and, you know, broadly construed. And and I think it's it's in the internment camp period that he begins to see himself entering the field of psychiatry. And so he gets an M.D. Oh, oh I'm sorry. I'm jumping at the end of the war. Um, and. For reasons I don't know, because it's there's nothing in the archival or there's nothing in the archival or secondary source material. I don't know why, but he he does decide to go back to Germany at the end of the war, uh, as the war uh, uh, post war uh, post World War One Germany. He gets his MD at the University of Würzburg and begins postgraduate training to become a psychiatrist um, and uh, at some very prestigious institutions. And, and one of them happens to be um, with the, uh, the, the Kraepelin Institute, the Emil Kraepelin Institute. And Emil Kraepelin is still alive, active and running and directing his, uh, his, his, the, 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 the German uh, Institute for German Psychiatry. Uh, I'm, I'm not getting the exact phrasing correct, probably, but um, um, Emil Kraepelin is the singular most important German psychiatrist, if not one of the the singular important uh, psychiatrists, alongside uh, Sigmund Freud and and some maybe a couple of other of his of the of, of names i'm not uh, uh referencing but emil kraepelin um is the father of modern nosology which is classification mm-hmm. of mental disorders he is the first to study document and um and and in in some ways treat the two major psychoses of at the time they're called dementia precox which becomes in 1911 uh, kind of elaborated on by uh, Eugen Bloer, Bloiler of, of schizophrenia. So that's dementia precox and, and then manic depressive disorder, which becomes later, you know, the diagnosis of, of bipolar, of bipolar disorder. And, but one of the things about, um, uh, I'm probably speaking too long on this. I'll get, I'll get going a little further in a second. Uh, but this is really important is that Krapelin is a re- reactionary, um, uh, a reactionary German nationalist who is um, who who for Wortham and for me in subsequent for those of us uh, on <laughs> who he becomes a um, he aligns uh, psychiatry with rearguard politics in a really um, ugly way an unseemly marriage of 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 con- of of conservative reactionary politics and psychiatry and it and, and it and, and and it becomes in my interpretation a cautionary tale for wortham um, and and at, and in the midst of uh, his time with the Kraepelin Institute begins to um, uh, kind of put out feelers for positions in the United States. And so he actually is connected 
uh, by um, a, a couple of doctors uh, sojourning briefly in, in Germany. He gets connected with Adolf Meyer and the Phipps Institute uh, at Johns Hopkins. And, uh, and Meyer uh, takes him on. Meyer takes him on as a, as a, uh, as a, a, a junior, I think it was called a junior alienist. That's what they, you know, they called psychiatrists. But the, um, he comes to be in, uh, in Baltimore. And here's where it becomes particularly relevant for his later work. He comes to Baltimore, which is a peculiar city. It's a segregated city. It's a Jim Crow city, but it's not in, as I, it's not in the, the, the Confederacy, right? It's a, it's, um, and, but it's a, it's a segregated city. And, and yet he, uh, Wortham, um, comes to, um, align himself with the plight of, of African American patients in need of care. And, and, and in those kind of where I've always, I, I, I tend to see Wortham as a zealot figure encountering some of the <laughs> kind of stars of history. He, um, uh, becomes acquainted with H.L. Mencken and Clarence Darrow, and Clarence Darrow, the, the great lawyer, um, uh, br- uh, brings African American uh, clients um, who need uh, psychiatric testimony. Um, bring uh, brings these African American patients to a young Doctor Wortham, mm. and so from 1922 to 1927, uh, Wortham is in the the segregated uh, Baltimore. Baltimore, um, and then is pushed out of that position because of, as the title of chapter two is, uh, intangible difficulties. That's the description that Meyer uses in a, in a quote unquote recommendation, recommendation. letter. Let's yeah, call it yeah. a reference letter. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to, but to really, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, address your question is that he, um, is at the center of um, developments uh, in in uh, in American psychiatry at Phipps, and yet begins that process of of becoming marginal, both on a personal and right oh, a kind of a racial political uh, level of of countering the grain of of the kind of order of institutional politics, and um, and 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 he brings that with him. To uh, as he after a, a, a brief foray in, back to Germany in the early 1930s, he becomes the first uh, psychiatrist on the um, the Court of General Sessions in in New York City, and that's where he enters into the field of 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 um, of, of forensic psychiatry and criminal psychopathology, which ultimately. Um, is the path that leads him to uh, encountering Richard Wright in the early 1940s. Richard Wright, the novelist, uh, wrote Native Son and then the, and, and a number of other important texts. Um, you know, one, kind of the the um, one of the signal feature, figures in in African American literature um, and politics, to be quite to be quite. Uh, uh, um, uh, frank and, 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 and straightforward with that. And it's, it's through, um, Wortham's work in, um, the court of general sessions in forensic psychiatry, in criminal psycho- psychopathology that he begins to formulate a version of, 
of a notion of of social psychiatry of of taking into consideration the social uh, determinants of mental health and mental disorder. And I just want to say one last thing on that, and that that it's it's I, I I always imagine this narrative in terms of convergence. So how do we get Wortham and Wright? in a room in 1945 planning to open the first psychiatric clinic in Harlem. And, and it's, and it's through this concern over both individual and collective violence rooted in um, both the social order, but also in forms of mental disorder that are also referred to as psychopathology. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And another huge thing, Red, is the influence of psychoanalysis on personality analysis and focusing Absolutely. on culture, but culture at the expense of one's actual social situation. Absolutely. Right? And that's Absolutely. something that I think that uh, to turn to you know, our next uh, figure, as you so gracefully signaled, that's a similar uh, trajectory to the one that Richard Wright has in kind of navigating through um, you know, his own intellectual mm. upbringing, a lot of which uh, took place kind of informally in Chicago. Uh, yes. Sort of, you know, interacting, uh, like interacting sometimes with figures of the Chicago School of Sociology. Yes. So how is it that Richard Wright came to Harlem to found this clinic uh, as a kind of young thinker and novelist? Yeah, I, I, I love it. I, I love I love the way you pose the question, too. And I mean, um, you know, just a quick word about the structure of the book that kind of kind of helps uh, mm-hmm. tie this together a bit is the structure of the book is um, of Under the Strain of Color is. Um, uh, an introduction um, for um, standalone topical chapters and, a, and, and an epilogue. Um, and the first two chapters um, do exactly what I tried to talk about just now, which is, which is um, uh, how do we get these two really disparate um, figures and who in their own ways are both uh, prominent and marginal, and I'll explain a little bit more in in Wright's case about that. But um, it, I've always thought about those initial chapters. The first chapter being um, uh, on Richard Wright and the psychology of race relations as as the subtitle, um, and then the second chapter being the chapter on Frederick Wortham, intangible difficulties. The third chapter is a kind of wholesale um, kind of anatomy of the of the Lafarge clinic really the kind of orientation nuts and bolts practices has some patient file discussion and 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 like the it sets the context for the clinic it's a real kind of uh, to 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 coin a birth of the clinic right mm-hmm. <laughs> the birth the birth life and and death of the clinic in some ways not as much death yet <laughs> but <laughs> the birth and life of the clinic the fourth chapter looks at um, the role of the Lafarge Clinic and particularly Dr. Wortham in two prominent social phenomena and controversies of the day. One being um, the, uh, the public school desegregation cases that culminated in Brown v. Board of Education school desegregation ruling of the Supreme Court. And the other, the juvenile delinquency debates of the 1950s uh, most saliently, saliently distilled in 
Frederick Wortham's infamous or famous, <laughs> depending on your persuasion, uh, 1954 book, Seduction of the Innocent, which I, I believe we will at least have a moment to chat about uh, subsequently. But that's just to give you quick, just a quick overview, I think would kind of help, help because it, what I wanted to do in the first two chapters on Wright and Wortham was to, in many ways, map, and I use that word not just kind of figuratively, but to map both map the intellectual biography and geography. I think the geography of both figures is very important. And to connect just to your, 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 your uh, directly to your question of Chicago is uh, Richard Wright is born in 1908 in, uh, in Mississippi, grows up in the deepest, deepest Jim Crow South. Many of, uh, of your listeners probably have read black boy and hopefully the second portion that most uh, many have not read is American Hunger. The whole uh, autobiography was originally titled American Hunger. But the, but the, get to the point is he's born in 1908, grows up in Jackson, and then and partially in Helena, Arkansas. I think it was Helena uh, in Arkansas. Um, migrates to Chicago, uh, to the south side of Chicago in 1927, joining that stream of 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 migrants out of out of uh, the 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 old and quote unquote new south right um, and you know encounters uh, uh, the city of Chicago and its uh, its urban anomie and both the uh, the the beauties of anonymity and the Terrors of of anonymity, so to speak, in 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 modern industrial life in Chicago, and uh, you know, he, as he says, in, and I quote, he says, "When I arrived in Chicago, I had a vague yearning to write, but I didn't have the tools. I needed I needed something to uh, you know to to orient and fasten." his expression of, of his own and others lives. And, and through a sheer, Oh, I mean, it couldn't be scripted better. He, he, uh, during the great depression, as it hits, hits really hard in Chicago, uh, the onset of in the late, uh, late 29 and into the thirties, uh, they have his, he and his family have to seek, uh, what was then called relief, which is, you know, welfare, right? And he gets a social worker. His social worker is Mary Worth. And uh, 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 ears are probably perking up now because uh, Mary Worth is married to the great Chicago school sociologist, Dr. Lewis Worth, who was one of the most prolific and important figures in Chicago school uh, urban sociology. Um, uh, for those, I recommend everybody who wants a quick digest of read read his American Journal of Sociology piece called "Urbanism as a Way of Life." I still teach that in my my uh, my urban studies classes. Uh, oh, I'm jointly appointed in Afri- uh, in ethnic studies and and urban studies and planning. But um, but through this sheer accident, um, as Wright is hungering for. Um, facts and social theory to un- to explain both his experience and that of his um, fellow migrants into the city of Chicago, his fellow African-American migrants, he encounters a 
a wholesale explanatory framework of what was called urban ecology, of thinking about the ways in which um, different uh, ethno-racial groups interact on the landscape of the city. And um, that, uh, but, but, but not only was there an attention to um, uh, group encounter, there was an attention in the Chicago school to the psychology. A lot of that's often overlooked in discussions of, there was a lot of attention through, um, through early kind of life history and ethnography to what, um, what, city life did to the psyche of the newly migrated and their children. And so um, encountering Mary Worth, encountering Lewis Worth, he found in the Chicago school um, the rudiments of a, of a, of a, of a set of social theories about the effects of modernity on modern, on, on modern, on the modern psyche. And um, at the very same moment, that he's encountering the Chicago school, he attends uh, a meeting of the John Reed Club, which was the literary arm of the uh, American Communist Party. And um, in, uh, I believe it was 1932 or 1933, uh, Richard Wright joins the American Communist Party. And he joins the South Side unit. They're broken into unit, well, kind of cells units. And he's part of the South Side unit, which is obviously, well, I should say obviously, but predominantly uh, or almost all African-American because of the South Side ghetto, right? And so at the same time, he's encountering the Chicago school. He's, he's, he's encountering uh, radical uh, social theory and politics through Marx and – Add the third to the third variable that goes into shaping his intellectual uh, orientation and, and armament, and that's um, the American uh, American fiction writers, uh, uh, the naturalists and realists, um, who uh, uh, who 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 actually oftentimes took Chicago as its site, namely Theodore Dreiser um, and 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 other other novelists. And, and so um, he's incorporating and assessing and taking this all in. And at the same time, he's got his own experiences of life and work and he begins to write, he begins to write um, uh, uh, short stories and poetry. And um, it's also by the mid 1930s that he does encounter um psychoanalysis but he's not fully steeped in that and part of my case my kind of argument in that chapter is that um while he never fully in any way jettisons or throws away what he's learned in chicago it's in new york it's in this his it's in his geographical movements that he comes into contact with different um, ideas, institutions that then come to the fore. Um, and, and for him, his departure from Chicago in 1937, uh, uh, that corresponds in the late 1930s to his full deep, uh, well, at least his 
initial major foray into understanding psychoanalysis. And, and in particular, and this is where the convergence with right Wortham happens mm-hmm. is in the question of psychopathology, right? What is, what are the sources of mental stress, mental disorder that may lead someone to act, um, in, in this case, in, 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 in his interests, his case, um, criminally of, of violence, of, of acts of either self violence or, or violence against others. And, and in K and, and it comes to be that interest famously comes to be expressed in the monumental, um, uh, watershed book of native son, which he charts the life uh, well, the, a brief portion of the life of, of the famous, uh, bigger Thomas character. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, and it's, it's in this moment of 1940 is when that's published. And then at the very same time that Wortham, that Wright is writing of, of, of bigger Thomas, Wortham is writing, uh, a book on, um, uh, a young Italian, uh, immigrant named Gino. Well, it's a, it's a pseudonym. Um, uh, a, a young Italian immigrant named Gino who commits matricide, uh, by stabbing his mother, um, uh, for her, uh, you know, uh, alleged, uh, promiscuity. Uh, she's a widow. Um, I, I won't get too far into that, but the point is that the, that there, it's a, it's called, the book is called Dark Legend, a study in murder. And, it um uh and and at the suggestion of Ella Winter, the Lynch, the, I mean the the, the well bad word <laughs> linchpin, <laughs> the linkage of uh, the linkages is the figure of Ella Winter, who I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. as the cousin of Doctor Wortham. Ella Winter knows right through radical circles through the communist party circles and suggests to Wortham, Hey, why don't you send your book dark legend mm-hmm. to, um, to Richard Wright, who has become the most famous African-American author, um, uh, in the country, if not the world, because of the, the native son is adopted by the book of the month club mm-hmm. and gets into homes. Um, because you know, if you're on the, book of the month club you you received the book right and it gets into homes that it never would have probably had it not been for the book of the month club and so it sets into motion um a connection between these two who who really you know it, it would be easy to say that that wortham was the kind of guide and mentor and that's not wholly accurate right right because you know, I like the idea of, of of Wortham as this, you know, the scientific practitioner, uh, you know, for the for the hungry for knowledge, uh, hung, hungry for scientific knowledge and practice, um, uh, right? But in, in in many ways, they they had an they had um, an equal exchange. Wortham, mm-hmm. Wortham, and not in a kind of patronizing way, wanted more insight into, um, um. Well, um, um, letters, uh, 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 into fiction, but also African American life, insight into, um, uh, the experience of, of, of being, uh, black in an anti-black society. Right. And I think that, yeah, you definitely get at this in the chapter on the clinic itself, but one of the major, um, criticisms of the clinic that emerges from the, 
uh, you know, the kind of status quo of American psychiatry is that, you know, <laughs> what is a white German Jewish man yeah, yeah. in Harlem setting up a clinic for black patients? Like they, they sort of see it as this kind of incommensurability. There's no way yes. that a black patient would have any reason to trust this guy. That's... And there's, he really has no business there otherwise. So with that, I want to get to the actual, you know, kind yeah. of how the mechanics of the clinic worked a bit more. Yes, so yes. it was housed in uh, St. Philip's church, I believe. In, yes. St. Uh, Philip's yeah, Episcopal on West, uh, yes, mm-hmm. West 134th street. And, right. and, you know, the, you know, of, 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 and uh, to, to, to address your question, I mean, um, you know, uh, there's a, there's a third figure who's very important right. to the, to the history and the, and to the narrative. And that's the figure of, uh, Father Shelton Hale Bishop. Father Shelton Hale Bishop is the rector, pastor of St. Philip's. And he, um, at a time when there wasn't, a large degree of rapprochement or, or, or embrace between the ministry or at least Christian ministry, um, let alone African American, uh, uh, churches and the field of medical psychology, uh, uh, psychiatry. Um, uh, Bishop embraces the idea of the clinic Mm -hmm. and he embraces the, uh, the he 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 embraces um dr wortham's earnest investment and um is in i think um you know i don't know exactly how it exactly how it played out but 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 wortham um was vouched for by Richard Wright. I mean, no less than Richard Wright and, and another important figure, uh, Ralph Ellison. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ralph Ellison, uh, uh, author of Invisible Man plays a kind of a minor sh- a role in this history. Uh, he in fact, he's part of the clinic, correct? Yeah. Well, he, vol- and, 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 more, more like, um, I, I, he, uh, he was ensconced in the Harlem community at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, and I saw I remember seeing in some archival reference had introduced um, uh, Wer- uh, Wright and Wortham to uh, to uh, Father Bishop mm. and um, and and later just a quick quick note uh, later Ellison um, would come to write what I think is one of the most extraordinary pieces. Uh, uh, essays on the Lafarge Clinic called Harlem is Nowhere, mm. uh, which is published in, well, actually it was, um, it was, uh, acquired by, uh, a, a, a magazine called Magazine of the Year, but it was actually that magazine folded and the, the essay was actually never, uh, published until 1964 in Ellison's Shadow and Act. And just as an important footnote for those of you in Chicago, the Art Institute of Chicago uh, is just initiated, just opened an exhibition on, um, which, which captures the, uh, and presents the collaboration between Ralph Ellison and the great African American, uh, photographer and filmmaker, uh, 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 the first black staff photographer of Life magazine, Gordon Parks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 you know, in the, there was a, um, uh, there were photos, um, that were conjoined and that correspond to 
Ralph Ellison's great, um, great essay. But one of the, you know, getting back to your question about, you know, the figure of, of, of Wortham and whether or not, uh, such a clinic would work being directed by this, um, uh, thick, relatively thick accented Bavarian born <laughs> non-religious Jewish man who, um, was over six feet tall, lanky and kind of, um, uh, daunting. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, like, you know, um, uh, he, he had a, he, he cut a kind of, oh, you know, maybe a scary, a scary figure to some. I mean, me included. Who, 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 I, I don't mean, I, I don't mean to be flippant about it, just or jokey. Point being, he was a, he, you know, he could be an intimidating figure, but he was a, he, um, uh, uh, he was an extremely earnest, earnest figure, um, who could talk the talk. He could explain that he wasn't uh, there for a what he referred to as a re- reformist project or to, quote unquote, study the Negro personality, which was, you know, in the wake of uh, or in the midst of World War Two, you know, in the midst of uh, the great. Well, you know, the, the, the big text, An American Dilemma uh, by Gunnar Myrdal, that's on the lips and minds of a lot of of American social scientists and policy majors is to study, you know, what makes the Negro tick and what are uh, the kind of endemic pathologies that inhibit his, his full inclusion in the, uh, the, the, the body politic and social order. But to get to the point, um, Wortham, um, you know, was initially denied by, Major philanthropies, including the Marshall Field Foundation. There's a great episode in, uh, in chapter three that I want your readers to check out where, uh, they are denied, um, funding for the clinic on those exact reasons you po, you po, you pose to us about that they'll never come to them. They won't trust him. You know, the important aspect of why I introduced into the conversation Father Shelton Hill Bishop is because the fact that the clinic was housed in a church in the uh, where where uh, uh, um, the title of chapter three is between the sewer and the church, which comes from the original title of Ellison's essay Harlem is nowhere. He, he, it's, it's the clinic was literally to the bottom is the sewer and above is the church, and this was a unique and safe space. And there's no other, you know, not to romanticize it, but it was, it removed the stigma, I argue. Uh, you know, the, the topic of stigma is on the lips of contemporary um, uh, practitioners and researchers in the area of, 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 of racialized health disparities. And, um, you know, uh, well, actually, on on the topic of mental health and uh, mental health treatment, and, and on a whole, the question of stigma and the the Lafarge Clinic being housed in a church signaled to community members mm-hmm. um, that it was embraced and that they wouldn't be toyed with or messed with, or that their that their lives and their lives and minds would be taken seriously, and so Wortham. Um, brought a wealth of experience, right? Prior experience, um, speaking with and relating to 
patients of all walks of life, including African-American patients. Um, and, but he more, moreover brought, uh, with him, uh, an earnest disposition to say, you know, um, I take your life seriously. I take your mind seriously. The protocols for treatment, um, and directives, um, to the staff. And, and in some ways you, uh, you capture that in that one page, uh, sheet to some, you know, the wind mm-hmm. like of, of the orientation of the clinic that, um, you know, I have, I wish you had a visual to correspond to our, our, I, cause I have with me, I, <laughs> um, I did an oral history with, um, uh, with Shelton Hill Bishop's daughter, uh, um, Dr. Uh, Elizabeth Bishop Davis Trussell, who, was uh, uh, going to Columbia Medical School at the time of the Lafarge Clinic mm-hmm. and actually joined, you know, volunteered on the staff and, you know, subsequently became a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst and actually became the first head of the Department of Psychiatry at Harlem Hospital, which didn't have a Department of Psychiatry until 1962, by the way. Um, and, and during my oral history... Uh, she had some memorabilia, um, and she, um, graciously gave me one of the brochures. She had a, a, mm. a little batch of brochures and, um, you know, it, it, it tells the hours of the clinic and I just to lead into your, you know, kind of specific questions, right? It says the Lafar clinic is designed to provide expert psychotherapy for those who need it and cannot get it. Its services are available to any child or adult with, with or without referral from any public or private agency. A nominal fee of 25 cents, 50 cents for court testimony is charged for those who can afford it. Uh, and lastly, I just wanted to share this last point is on the flip side. It says the Lafar clinic is a clinic for the treatment of all kinds of nervous and mental disorders and behavior difficulties of adults and children. Its emphasis is not on testing and retesting, but on practical, intensive, and if necessary, prolonged psychotherapy. The diagnostic and psychotherapeutic methods employed are in accordance with the highest modern scientific standards. <laughs> I, 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 I appreciate you bearing with me when I uh, read a few por- you know, a few things here and there, because I know that's not the most conversational thing to do, but I just wanted to uh, oh, uh, reference that. I, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, so in terms of uh, both the, the uh, orientation that Wortham brought and the kind of the specific protocols for intake and, um, and, and offering uh, uh, a, a form of social psychotherapy that paid attention, uh, paid very close attention uh, to the patients place in the social order of things, so to speak, that didn't, which, which contrasted. And it was, this was an earlier question you had kind of contrasted with forms of orthodox, uh, uh, American psycho, psycho forms of psychoanalysis. And, uh, that emphasized the family unit, right. Um, not necessarily to the exclusion of, of, culture or society. In fact, there was a, there was a school of thought coming from out of like a, a neo-Freudianism 
people like Karen Horney uh, and, and, and Harry Stack Sullivan, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Harry Stack Sullivan, in terms of the culture and personality school. Right, right. Um, uh, but um, the explicit reference and uh and engagement with um the the context of of racialization of uh i mean if you think about something like like paranoia right if you think of a an example like such as paranoia like there's this great interview in 1960 shortly before um richard wright dies uh, with a friend, with a French journalist, and he's talking. Uh, they ask him about his involvement in psychology, psychiatry, and uh, I don't remember if they ask specifically about the Lafarge Clinic, but they ask about. And he says, "Well, you know," <clears throat> he gives this uh, anecdote or or scenario of of uh, a, a, a white patient and a black patient waiting to go into a psych uh, into uh, see the psychiatrist and. Uh, the the white patient refers to being, uh, you know, thinking that people are following him. Uh, when he goes into uh, a, a department store, he's followed by clerks. When he the police uh, uh, pay attention to his every move. Uh, when he goes to get when he goes into um, a diner, he believes that he's being uh, poisoned with salt or something. Like you know, just and. And the doctor says, well, you know, you're, you're paranoid and you're, you're showing signs of, you know, this, uh, you know, of, of, of perhaps paranoid schizophrenia, you're, you're fantasizing. And, the, and an African-American patient comes in and, and, uh, and describes the same uh, experiences. And the, the doctor says the same, very same thing to him. It's not taking, it, right uses that as to say, you know, what is normal on a normal experience for an African American person in 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 modern American society, uh, is is diagnosed in the very same format as um, as a white patient because this, the, the 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 particularity of that social experience is not taken into consideration. And while that's an anecdote and a portrait, I think in a lot of ways, um, right is uh, in some ways distilling. Um, some of the unique uh, orientations um, of of the Lafarge Clinic. I've mm-hmm. I know I've spoken far too long on that, but um, and I, I'm sure we need to wrap up soon. Yeah, but, well, um, I mean, to wrap things it's up just on the subject been, of so, right, yeah, uh, I think that you know <laughs> what's interesting is that Wright does kind of recede into the background pretty quickly yes. into camps for Paris. Yes. So I want to I want to hear just you know for our listeners the kind of the fate of Wright and his involvement in the clinic. Then uh, the fate of Wortham, as you were talking about, who went on to write yes. uh, The Seduction yes. of the Innocent and is now known as a comic book crusader. And then yeah. the eventual fate of the clinic and how that shut down. Yes. So to sort yes. of tie the story uh, together. Yeah, together. yeah. Thank you. Thank you for <laughs> redirecting me there. Yeah. Um, so um, uh, Richard Wright um, uh, expatriates. Uh, he leaves. He quits the United States and moves to uh, France in 19. 19- to live in Paris in 1947, and he still remains on the uh, the the board of directors of of the uh, Lafarge Clinic, and and makes um, uh, writes uh, writes things here and there for fundraising and for um, uh, and and um, to publicize 
the the work of the clinic. But on a to be very straightforward, he he uh, doesn't um, uh, participate in the day to day operations of the clinic much after really getting the clinic off the ground. And I, you know, that's something I wrestled with in the narrative, right? Of uh, in in the sense of you know he uh, he's this formative like invaluable figure in the establishment and uh, initial um, launch of the clinic. Um, but then again, largely recedes. Um, but uh, his, um, his contributions, I, I argue really warranted his place within the narrative of, of the clinic. He becomes much more of a a kind of international citizen there's no doubt about it so that his while his interests of course remain um uh uh, uh, diagnosing and explaining the workings of race in the united states he turns his attention attention very much to the the kind of the question of global um uh colonialism and anti-colonialism of 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 the context of 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 questions around um uh war and uh and 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 well not to be too corny but war and peace of of staving off future future world wars and um and and his fiction varies between um kind of wrestling with uh forms of existentialism but also he later does return back to um a very rooted African American narratives, and as my dissertation advisor uh, Jim Campbell shows in his book Middle Passages: African American Journeys to Africa, he actually shows very interestingly how how Wright retained his orientations in uh, in in the Chicago School and Freudian psychoanalysis as he encounters the rest of the world. And famously in in his book Black Power, uh, which is kind of the first enunciation of that phrase, he writes this book about Ghana uh, in the midst of 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 Nkrumah's ascendancy and anti colonial decolonial efforts, and um, his descriptions of the relationship between um, uh, African colonial life and uh, modern Europe, the modern European Westernization. He distills his descriptions of this antagonism or encounter through the very orientations that actually um, were expressed, and 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 actually, I, I argue, like you know, led into his involvement with um, the Lafar Clinic. And so, yes, his he does recede from the narrative, but um, I, I, there are a few uh, later encounters that I actually don't write about, but I might take up in in some subsequent work in in some interesting ways. But I'm going to bracket that. Um, and Wortham comes to be um, a kind of flashpoint uh, for um, the question of the relationship between mass media in the form of crime comic books and the question of 
juvenile delinquency and, and not just juvenile delinquency, but violence. It centers on the question of violence. What sources contribute to young people's enacting of, of violence, uh, either to oneself or to others. And, and at the same time, at the same time that Wortham is encountering, uh, and observing the role of violent crime comic books in the lives of young children that he's encountering at very famously at the Lafarge clinic and at his work as, as the, um, at the, uh, uh, psychiatric clinic at, uh, Queens general hospital. Um, at the very same time that he's trying to assess and make sense of the role of these crime comic books, he's also being asked to participate in um, the uh, the scientific testimony uh, in the two Delaware de- school desegregation cases that were um, uh, uh, later that were bundled. Uh, as companion cases with Brown v. Board of Education. And, um, and for the first time, um, in no other cases, uh, in the four other cases besides Brown v. v. Board, in no other cases were both white and black children, uh, examined in a clinical setting. Um, uh, you know, the, the testimony largely was largely focused on the uh, pernicious effects of segregation on the psyches of black children. But um, Wortham insisted that the uh, NAACP legal defense and education fund uh, lawyers, Jack Greenberg and Thurgood Marshall, that they, um, that they bring both white and black children to the Lafar clinic. And they did on five occasions brought black group of black and white children to be examined. And what, uh, and they, and he testifies in the Delaware case and actually sways the judge. It's the only case of the five cases that went into Brown v. Board of Education. It's the only case in which the, uh, the plaintiffs won, in which the plaintiffs, those suing for, uh, desegregation won. But he couldn't, uh, but the, the judge couldn't, uh, strike down desegregation because it was a, it, because of precedent that um, it had to be decided by the Supreme Court. And what, what links both the um, seduction of the innocent and the school desegregation testimony is Wortham's um, concern uh, of framing of both issues in terms of, of a threat to public health. He, from the, 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 the linchpin between his work in seduction of the innocent and the school desegregations is the notion of identifying and eradicating sources of, of threat to the, to the emotional and mental health of, of children. And he argues on the one case that these violent crime comics, on the other, state sanctioned, uh, state sanctioned segregation and, and, and anti-black racism. And one of the kind of largely overlooked components of seduction of innocent is that there's a, there's a, um, there's a case 
that Wortham makes about the relationship between um, uh, represent of 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 racist representation and uh, and violence and the kind of the opening of permission to be violent towards um, the capital O other right yeah and so ultimately um, ultimately uh, Wortham um, has tremendous sway he he has. Tremendous sway, um, but then just almost as immediately as he has sway, he is um, kind of written out of the narrative of the uh, of the Brown v. Board of Education social science contribution. Um, but and then, but but very much is written into the uh, the the kind of as the arch villain, um, and for some for some reasons right, and I would argue for some reasons wrong, uh, uh, written as the arch, uh, kind of arch, uh, uh, the archetype for um, uh, 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 a villainous censor. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then so, it's, yeah. You know, to add insult to injury almost, it seems like his efforts with the Lafarge Clinic and the way in which they're enacted uh, basically exempt the clinic itself from support in legislature that gets passed to fund uh, similar kinds of institutions. So absolutely. it's sort of like that, that becomes the nail in the coffin for the clinic, really. <sighs> absolutely. The in the very same year, 1954, the, it's a, that's, it's a, a, that's a pivotal year, right? It's, it's, it's a good year on one, right? It's the Brown v. Board of Education in May, May of 1954. But, you know, and Seduction of the Innocent is, published in 1954. But in New York State, the Community Mental Health Services Act uh, uh, seems to be this auspicious occasion and opportunity for the Lafar Clinic to get the resources it has dreamed about since its inception. And um, they're denied. They're denied uh, through, uh, through several applications for funding. Uh, they're, they're denied. And it's because, I mean, frankly, um, uh, Wortham had, um, Wortham was a prickly figure mm-hmm. where he was, he, he often ostracized those who could be, um, most possibly in his corner because yeah. he, uh, you know, I think the term, uh, idea fix was made for him, right? The idea that his way, he had an idea and it had to be done exactly his way and, and he wouldn't, you know, truck or traffic in any watered down versions of, 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 of well, of anything. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so um, in 1954, it, this, you know, the uh, auspicious enactment of the community mental health services act, uh, the clinic itself doesn't get funding. And by, you know, it, it, it hangs on and, and, and offers services for uh, four more years. And I always say when I'm talking about the clinic, you know, um, that, you know, 12 years, you know, 12 years is a long time for a do-it-yourself institution mm-hmm. of grassroots institution building. 12 years of, of, of an all-volunteer staff operating every Tuesday and Friday evening. That's a long time. It, you know, you look at, the, at the, you look at it on a timeline and it's a blip. But 12 years of week in and week out offering patient of, of, of thousands of patients um, recurring and, and humane and, and, and democratized 
psychotherapy when they didn't have access in any other institution of its type. Um, that's, uh, that's something to commend the significance of this clinic. And more, moreover, I would argue that, you know, um, uh, that, that the, the, uh, the model of the clinic, maybe not all of its elements would come to later serve as a, a kind of, uh, the model would, would, would in some ways be picked up, um, uh, in a later, in a later iteration, and that being the the community mental health movement of the 1960s. And in fact, I'm not going to say that there's this direct correlation because there isn't. But some of the figures, including people that I, uh, great uh, octogenarians that I interviewed who were staff members, including uh, 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 Father Bishop's daughter, Doctor Doctor Bishop Davis Chausel, and 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 the figure of uh, someone with one of the greatest names I've ever encountered is Dr. June Jackson Christmas. Dr. June Jackson Christmas was a, uh, a medical student and then late, uh, like an, and an intern at Queens General Hospital and a student, uh, you know, uh, 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 supervised by Dr. Wortham. She later becomes the, in the 1970s, the New York City Commissioner of Public Health. And so she cut her teeth, so to speak, uh, at the Lafar Clinic, in terms of um, her her approach to um, offering, uh, you know, in, in terms of public health and of 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 of, 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 a, of a humane practice of, of of psychiatry, and so there's a you know there's a there's a kind of a, there's an a, an individual and an uh, uh, you know there's an individual legacy, but there's a you know I think in um, in in some ways there's a um, uh, a kind of Zeit, no, I don't know Zeit guy, but like a, just a spiritual uh, legacy that gets picked up um, uh, later on. And, and, and in, in a lot of ways, for me, the exciting point about recapturing this history in some ways, I mean, well, the story has been told in, in portions by other um, uh, excellent scholars. You know, this is the first kind of, this is the first comprehensive study of the Lafar Clinic uh, in, in Under the Strain of Color. Um, it, 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 it offers to um, contemporary scholars and practitioners um, a model. It says, "Hey, there was this model of of, of intervention um, uh, that that foregrounded um, the uh, the social context and social experience of 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 forms of oppression, straight up oppression, not to dance away from a term." people don't always use, but oppressive life circumstances um, structured upon race and um, uh, labor inequality, um, that there was this model that existed uh, back in the day, but um, this story has resonated because, you know, a lot of um, contemporary practitioners are wrestling with questions uh, around you know, questions around cultural competency, around um, what 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 the psychiatrist and, and 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 scholar Jonathan Metzl refers to as structural competency. You know, these are these are concerns and questions that are on the lips and minds of 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 of, uh, of contemporary um, uh, uh, medical practitioners and social workers and and others. So, um, 
you know, having this uh, history serve as an al- alternate model for intervention, you know, um, kind of beyond the um, primarily biophysical approach. I'm not kind of opening up a can of worms with that, but but if that's one thing that this book kind of gestures to or is to is to um, kind of juxtapose uh, a, a, an earlier model of of so of, of social psychiatry uh, kind of not over and against but side by side with the kind of um, well for lack of a better word uh, hegemonic biophysical biomedical um, approach to uh, psychiatry that is um, um, that is uh, that reigns right now. There's another model that I think can be usefully juxtaposed. Um, yeah, yeah. So well, thank um, you for that. That was a very yeah, nice uh, thank suggestion you. of the potential scope of influence of the book. And on that note, I was wondering if you know, we're kind of running out of time, but I yeah. was hoping you could briefly summarize uh, what your current project is, and how oh, it speaks to, or the yeah. to many of these issues you've discussed. Thank you. Thank you for that question, because, you know, it's something and it was connected to uh, another question on my mind. It's sort of like, you know, what what um, what is it I didn't do in this book that I would have loved to do or or what? You know, and it really does connect. I'm currently beginning work on my second uh, um, uh, single authored uh, book, and that's called um, Through the Glass Darkly race and madness in modern America. And it's a much more broad scope text that uh, looks in a comparative and relational uh, way at racial, the, the intersections of racialization and, uh, and mental health, mental illness in within various uh, populations, African-American uh, indigenous and, and native peoples, um, uh, uh, Latinos in the Southwest, Latin, uh, Latinos in in uh, in the Northeast, as w- and 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 uh, and and other other populations, um, and looks at this larger question of what is the relationship? It just poses the basic question of what's the relationship between uh, uh, questions of of racialization and 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 mental health and mental illness, both at a kind of um, uh, discursive construction of science level and also lived experience level as well as, and this is where it's interdisciplinary, looks at questions of kind of representation of like the image and idea of madness and to what degree the objects of research and institutionalization, whatever, in whatever way, the objects, those populations, to what degree have they maneuvered or discerned or offered up alternate models and meanings of madness. And so one of the things that I've, I've always wished I got in, in retrospect, like kind of wish I could have done a little bit. Well, if I had had access in some ways to how um, African-Americans themselves in Harlem or even coming from what, whichever traditions or maybe even like folk, traditions, how they themselves saw the meanings of madness, meanings of mental disorder, and how they interpreted 
um, modern uh, psychiatric practices in the context of Lafarge Clinic's operation. Of course, I pay close attention to the patient files, but as we know, as sources, they are distilled through the pen of the recorder who is not without his or her own uh, interpretive biases. So uh, not to say that I could get direct, you know, uh, access to, you know, how did people think about, you know, because, you know, all sources are mediated to some extent, but at least um, one of the things I'm aiming that, that uh, kind of picking up where uh, uh, I wasn't able to go as far as I would have liked picking up that and, and, and enacting in my contemporary research, uh, an attention and attunement to uh, being attuned to how um, the communities who are and populations who are the uh, targets or objects of research and institutionalization, how they themselves respond to or offer up alternate um, uh, visions or versions of, of, of mental illness or mental health. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. Well, that sounds very exciting and uh, look forward to maybe in a few years time hearing about that work. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I'll get it to your, I'll get it to your desk very soon. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, Gabriel, thanks so much for your time and for uh, this wonderful discussion. And uh, to our listeners, absolutely uh, check out uh, Gabriel's book. Uh, It's available through Cornell University Press. Thanks so much for listening. This has been New Books in Medicine.